0: get uh, with us today and join us. And I think we are recording. So with that, good morning, uh, officially. Uh, it's good to have everyone back with me today uh, as we deal through one more season of, uh, one more Sunday of, of this quarantine season. I hope you all are doing well, but thank you for joining me today. It was only a week ago in the midst of this season of quarantining that my sons did something, and truthfully, I don't even remember what it was, but it was something that got them in trouble. So so that's the first piece of information that you need to know. The second piece of information that you need to know is that my family enjoys movies. We have a nice setup in the room above the garage. There's a big TV up there, and we have a tradition of watching uh, a movie up there, usually once a week. And it's always a big deal on who gets to choose the movie that we're gonna watch. There are debates and votes, and ultimately we end up landing on something that, well, three out of four of us would agree upon. Okay, so there's four of us, and so I guess majority rules, uh, and whatever the majority rules, that's, that's usually ends up uh, with uh, what we watch, unless of course I overrule it because it's inappropriate or something like that. But anyway, that's, that's the basic setup. So there was an animated movie that was released back in 1998, maybe some of you remember this movie, it was called The Prince of Egypt. And I know um, uh, some of you probably remember this, and I suggested that uh, to my family that we watch this movie, a few times I've suggested it, uh, because it's based on the biblical account of the Exodus. And every time I suggest we watch this movie, it gets shot down every time, sometimes by three out of four of us. And uh, the kids most of the time after watching the preview will say, okay, here's the preview, we'll show them the preview and then we'll, we'll vote on it. They'll say something like, no, that looks so old. You see, 1998 is old now. Uh, it was made with the, the drawn animation, not the, the computer uh, generated animation like you see so much of today, like with Toy Story and, and uh, all those movies uh, like it. So it was an uphill battle to get my kids on board with wanting to watch this movie, The Prince of Egypt. But then back to where we began. The kids recently got in trouble and their punishment, I made them sit down and watch the Prince of Egypt with me. Tracy watched it with us too. She was on board and and for the record, just let me go ahead and say it, the boys liked the movie. And this is always the case. Whenever whenever they, they fight us about the movie, we pick for them to watch and they end up loving it anyway. So, but they liked it. Now, this was just a week ago. So this was the day before Easter. So there was a reason though, I wanted my kids to watch this movie the day before Easter. When we think about Easter, we so often focus on the resurrection of Christ, and hear me, rightfully so. That's what it's about. But in the account of the Exodus, we see the roots of the account of the crucifixion. And, and I wanted my sons to see this connection, that the Easter account isn't an isolated story in the New Testament. And yes, we could read through it with them. We have uh, read, read, uh, read parts of Exodus with them, but again, seeing it on the screen, I think it, uh, it awakened some of their other senses to it. And um, And the point I was trying to make is that God was telling us the story all along of of the crucifixion and the resurrection. All the way back, he was telling us all the way back in Exodus. Now, again, I knew that they were familiar, somewhat familiar with the Exodus account, but I wanted to try and connect the dots for them. So back in the Exodus account, it was the the 10th and final plague of Egypt when Moses was telling Pharaoh to let my people go that, that they may serve God. When the Lord swept through the land in this 10th plague, he swept through the land of Egypt, taking the lives of the firstborn as a proclamation of his judgment upon the people. And and no one would be spared, not not from the rich to the poor, no one would be spared unless, unless this, this plague would affect everyone universally, unless their household was marked by the protection of the blood of the Passover lamb. If their doorways were marked and protected and, and, and marked, uh, then they would be protected. Uh, if they were marked by the, the, the blood of the Passover lamb, they were safe. And, the, and the, the angel of the Lord would pass over those homes. Okay, And I explained to my boys that when they were depicting this on the movie, I said, see, all the way back in Exodus, all the way back in Exodus, God is telling the story of Jesus right here. Everyone, everyone is under the judgment of God unless they're protected by the blood of the lamb. If you're protected by the blood of the Lamb, the judgment of the Lord will pass over you too. This is why the Bible calls Jesus the Lamb of God. And this, and this is why the Easter account takes place during the observation of Passover. This is not a coincidence, okay? And of course, like the account in Exodus, the movie ends with the actual Exodus, which again is is a foreshadowing of your own Exodus. Did you know you had your own Exodus? Like the Israelites, you were a slave. You were a slave to sin, protected by the blood of the Lamb. You were baptized by the Holy Spirit in the same way the Israelites walked through the waters of the Red Sea and came out the other side of that baptism, a new creation. You were too. You went through your own exodus. And so this is where I'd like to to pick up in the Old Testament, having remembered your own exodus. And let's pick up here in the Exodus account, and resume the narrative with the Israelites entering in to the promised lands. They they crossed the Red Sea, and now they're on their way to the promised land. In the account in the Bible, the Israelites came out a new creation, no longer slaves to the Egyptians, but they were still sinners and wandered in the desert as a result of their sin. It's very much like you and I, who are a new creation in, in Jesus Christ, but we're still sinners. We live in this already-not-yet tension. The kingdom of God is active and is here now in the hearts of all believers. But we also await the final consummation when Jesus Christ returns. So, so let's pick up um, this account. Let's pick up in this account in the, in the Old Testament with the Israelites entering into the promised land. As today, we'll take a look at the character of Joshua, as I told you yesterday in, uh, in an email. Now Moses, Moses is the guy who led them out of captivity. And, and some of you may know, um, he was not the one who led them, Moses was not the one who led them in to the promised land. Moses was forbidden to go into the promised land because of his disobedience. You can read about that in, uh, in Exodus 17 and uh, in Numbers 20. So uh, Moses never got to enter the promised land. However, God did allow Moses the opportunity to stand on a mountain and gaze into the promised land from afar. And after Moses, the leader of the Israelites was Joshua. He would be the one to lead the people into the promised land. And right before they go in, you you almost have to wonder, what is Joshua thinking? Okay, why? Because Joshua had been there before. They're about to go to the promised land. Forty years earlier, Joshua stood right there. Forty years earlier. After they crossed the Red Sea, they came uh, near Canaan, which was the, the promised land. And Moses sent out 12 spies, one from each of the tribes of of Israel. Two of those spies were Caleb and Joshua. They they went in with with the uh, 10 other guys and saw the city Jericho, and they stood in front of of Jericho, and they scoped out the the whole thing, and they came back and said, we we went to the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. And look, here's the fruit. Here's the fruit we we picked. Look, it is enormous, okay? But the people... The people there, they said, and, and they're huge. The cities are fortified and very large. We can't go in there. They'll squash us. And that's what they said, except for Caleb and Joshua. They they sang a different tune. They said, no, we should go up. We should take possession of the land. We can do this. We can do this. God goes before us. But no one listened to them. Instead, they listened to the other 10 spies who said, no, we can't go in. They'll kill us. And once again, Israel complained to Moses, why? why did you bring us out here to die? We could have died in Egypt, right? And as they said that, Joshua and, and Caleb tore their clothes. No, don't act like this. Don't be stupid. The Lord is with us. And upon saying that, the whole assembly started talking about stoning Caleb and Joshua. You see, isn't it amazing how quickly we can forget the Lord's faithfulness. Isn't it amazing how quickly we forget that the Lord fights for us? They were just witnesses to seeing the armies of Egypt utterly annihilated and and the army, an army that they had no chance of defeating, but God fought for them and and protected them and, and, uh, and defeated the armies of the Egyptians. Now they stand in front of Canaan saying, no way, we can't beat them. We can't beat them, how quickly they forget. Okay. And the Lord tells the whole assembly, how, how long are you going to act this way? Haven't you seen the miraculous things I've done for you to bring you to this point? Don't you think I'm going to see you through this? What's the matter with you? And so Moses asks the Lord for forgiveness on behalf of, of all those whining people. And the Lord tells him, I- I've forgiven them, but hear this not one of those who treated me with contempt, in, in spite of the fact that they saw my glory and miraculous deeds in Egypt, not one of them will ever see the land I promised to their forefathers. None of them will see it. He then turned to, to Joshua and Jacob and promised them alone, just Joshua and Jacob, that out of the entire generation, they would be the only ones to see the promised land. And of course, the assembly moaned, and, and though they tried to proceed, they did nothing but wander for 40 years. And, that, and, and after 40 years later, after that generation had passed, now here's Joshua once again, Standing back, looking into the land of Canaan, the land that he tried to persuade them to enter 40 years prior. And what must he be thinking at that point? Finally, finally, we're back. We should have just gone in the first time that we were here. And now he's back. He's an old man. He's probably 80 years old. And he must be wondering how how all of this is going to go down. Okay, so as we open up the book of Joshua, we open up a book that is about the successor to Moses, who who God has ordained and appointed to lead the people from the wilderness into the promised land. And we get a hint of what's to take place in the very first chapter. So turn there to Joshua chapter one, if you haven't already, and we're going to start there uh, where it says this. This is Joshua chapter one, and I'll try and share my screen with you so you can see Joshua chapter one, verse one and following which says this after the death of excuse me after the death of moses the servant of the lord uh, jo- uh i can't see the word there can move that the servant of the lord <laughs> the lord said to joshua the son of nun moses assistant moses my servant is dead now therefore arise go over this jordan you and all this people into the land that i am giving to them to the people of israel Every place the sole of your foot will tread upon I have given you just as I promised to Moses from the wilderness in this Lebanon as far Lebanon Lebanon is in Tennessee Lebanon as far as the great river the river Euphrates all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life just as I was with Moses so I will be with you I will not leave you or forsake you. Okay. So in the blessing, going back to Abraham, when, uh, when God first made his promise, uh, to the people, he then, uh, to the, to his people, then uh, to, to Isaac, then to, to Jacob. And every time he restated his promise, he reiterated the fact that, that he would be with them. He promised to them saying, saying, uh, he promised it to Moses. And now that blessing is being passed on to Joshua. He says, I'll be with you. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. And then he goes on to say this in in verse 6 and following. This is Joshua 1, 6 and following. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do all uh, the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. And I love, uh, I lo- what I love about this command uh, to Joshua, let me come back here. What I loved uh, about this command to Joshua is uh, something you see throughout the scriptures. And you'll hear Bible teachers refer to it as the indicative and the imperative. And, and this is what this means. God never gives you a command, an imperative, without reminding you of, of who He is and what He's done or promised you. And, and here's what that does. He says, you're going to inherit the land that I swore to you. I'm going to give it to you just like I promised you. That's the indicative. And then he says, be careful to do according to the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. That's the imperative, okay, the command. But do you see, the command only comes after the promise or the reminder of what God has done and who he is. Uh, In other words, and, and and this is still true today, the commands that he gives you are made in light of what he's already done for you. He's not giving you commands to earn his favor. You already have his favor. Okay, we don't obey God to, to earn his favor. We already have the favor of Christ. We obey God's law out of the promise of what he's already done for us. It's just as true today as it was for Joshua. Okay, now let's skip ahead to, uh, to chapter 3. And uh, this is the point where Joshua is about to cross into the waters of the Jordan, uh, which is a scene very reminiscent of, of Moses and the Exodus. It says this in, in uh, Joshua 3. Uh, 7 and following. It says this Joshua 3 7 and following. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand in. The Jordan. This moment, as they're about to cross the Jordan, marks the moment when Israel breached the last barrier to the promised land and finally escaping the desert after 40 years. With the Ark of the Covenant before them, they arrive at the swollen Jordan River. God dried it up and protected them throughout and led them into the promised land. And and what's interesting about this is that during most of the year the jordan can be crossed easily but god waited until early spring when it was in full flood probably from the melting uh, snows on on mount hermon as we're told in, in verses 15 and 16. he waited he waited to bring them to the river until it was full to lead the israelites across the river now god's timing is always so interesting and perfect right this is a great example of how god deliberately leads his people on a more difficult path, for what purpose? To show his strength to them. Most any other time of the year, this river wouldn't have been a big deal to cross, yet he brings them to it at full crest, why? Once again, this is appropriate considering uh, what we're all facing right now and, and has been a persistent theme over the last several weeks. It seems most often, God takes us on the more difficult path and does so deliberately, why? Why does he do that? there 's a, a living God among us that desires to sanctify us and make us like his son, a living God that de- desires to show you a display of his strength and power that that we might believe and trust him okay it 's like when when I tell my kids no it doesn 't it doesn 't matter what it 's for okay it can be for for playing a video game or or staying up past their bedtime or or no you can 't eat a whole bag of candy, which again is is a a persistent theme in our house right now, right after Easter, okay? To them, hearing no is the worst thing in the world. They're devastated. Why, Dad? Why? And I've said before that our children, our children are like little caricatures of how we are with our Heavenly Father. We do the very same thing. Why, God? Why? We're devastated and we don't understand how he's led us to the point where he's led us and how that can be a good thing. Just like when I tell my kids no, it's it's not because I want to inflict pain upon them. You know here take that you guys right no i'm trying to teach them something i'm I'm interested in molding them into responsible human beings you can't just have a giant bag of candy anytime you want it's bad for you you won't get any nourishment from that in the same manner god doesn't bring about difficult circumstances in our lives just to inflict pain upon us he's trying to teach us something he's interested in molding us not not just into responsible human beings but he's ultimately interested in molding us into the image of his son. That's his chief objective with us. And he's never not doing that. Even if that means taking us the long way, even if that means disappointment, he's out to shape you. Okay. So what do we need to do? How do we allow ourselves, if I can say that uh, to be molded, you know, well, I'm glad you asked that. If uh, if that's a perfect segue to where I want to go next in in this uh, story of, uh, of uh, Joshua, this account of Joshua, um, perhaps to one of my favorite accounts in this book, and, and maybe even in the Bible. Uh, we're going to skip ahead to chapter five. Let me see. I think I have a comment here. Um, when our oldest son was deployed, this is from Karen. Uh, when our oldest son was deployed uh, in the Kunar province of northern Afghanistan, the scripture we covered uh, was with him was Joshua one nine. How incredibly appropriate! That's uh, that's a good. Thank you for sharing that, uh, uh, Karen. Uh, let's uh, let's go ahead and proceed to chapter five we're gonna read joshua chapter five uh verses 13 and following and it says this where oh where is it here we go when joshua was by jericho he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold i love this account one of my favorite accounts here in, in the whole bible uh, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his, his uh, drawn sword in hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord, and now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Wow, I love that passage. I love it. This, this must have been a, a pretty impressive sight. If the man standing in front of Joshua has a, has a drawn sword, you know what that means? If someone's standing before you with a drawn sword, that means this, this guy's ready for action. Here's 80-year-old Joshua walking up to the man who's fully armed with his sword drawn. And he gets right up to him. He gets right up in his face. And essentially Joshua tells the man, you have two options. You can either fight me to the death or bow the knee to me and be a part of this battle because I'm the general. Either you can fight me to the death or you can submit to me. You're either for us or you're against us, but there's no neutrality here. There's no onlookers. And so he asks him, are you for us or are you against us? And the man's answer? you need me to be. Hey, well, I- look at that. Siri's interrupting me. That's how convenient. So are you for us or are you against us? The man's answer? No. I love that. It was an either or question, not a yes or no question. It's either one or the other, but instead he tells them, I'm the commander of the Lord. You've got this wrong, Joshua. Either you're for or against me. And right away, then Joshua puts his nose in the dirt and worships him. Now, let me ask you this. Who has Joshua encountered here? Who do you think that is? I suppose we could open it up to the floor in, in the, the virtual floor and see if anyone wants to um, take a shot. Who is, jo- just easy answer here. Who is Joshua encountered here? Um, on the road here with the, the, the man. So, here you go, Sean Davidson. He's got the reply for us. Oh, we got more from Palmer from the Will Heights. Christ himself. That's right. This is, let me tell you, let me tell you with a high degree of certainty here. This is Jesus he's encountered. Jesus in the Old Testament. How can this be? Can it just be an angel? We are so fascinated by angels, aren't we? What's the deal with angels anyway, right? How, how do they work? Where are they? Can we see them? Wouldn't you like to see an angel? I know I'd like to see an angel, but seeing angel might mean that I'm dying and, and maybe I'm not ready for that right now, okay? Well, I hate to burst your bubble. Angels are a fascinating, uh, yet yeah, Luke is onto it right here. See, let me tell you what Luke said right here. Angels tell you not to worship them in scripture. You got that right. Here we go. This is what we're headed. This is exactly where we're headed. I hate to burst your bubble, but angels are a fascinating topic, but they're not the main topic in the Bible, okay? If you'll notice, whenever we read about angels, they're never the center of attention. They're never the central line of the story. They announce the story, or they'll point to the central focus, but they themselves are never the centerpiece of the story, okay? But what about this guy that Joshua is facing? He seems to be the center of the story, at least in this instance. That's what makes me to believe that this isn't just an angel. Because if there's one thing that we know about angels, we don't know a lot. But if there's one thing we know, it's what Luke just told us by way of the chat window. We don't worship angels. We worship God alone. So when Joshua falls to his knees and puts his nose in the dirt, who is he worshiping? Is it an angel? In the book of Revelation, this is what Luke was referring to uh, in in our class here. In the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verses 8 and 9, listen to what the... This is, all, this is all the way in the book of Revelation, okay? Listen to what the Apostle John is saying, and listen to what happens to him. I'm going to share the screen with you once again here, so you can see the scripture. Revelation 22, 8 and 9. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of an angel who showed them to me. Okay. Wait, so it's cool to worship angels, right? Hang on. Listen to verse 9. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Look at that. Wow. What's the angel saying here? Essentially, he's saying, yeah, I'm an angel, and I can probably do all kinds of things that you can't, and I've seen all kinds of things that you haven't. I'm a pretty big deal, granted. But you know what? At the end of the day, I'm a created being just like you are. Don't worship me. Worship God. So even the, even the angels in heaven know this, okay? So if an angel in heaven were to just come down before Joshua, and Joshua puts his nose in the dirt, the angel's response, as we saw in Revelation, should be, no, nah, don't worship me. Worship God alone. Okay, so when he did that, when he bowed down to worship this guy, did the man tell him, "Hey, hey, get up, don't do that. Worship God, not me. No, what does he do? He takes it one step further and says, take off your sandals. You're on holy ground. Realize who you're in the presence of. You're not in the presence of a created being. You're in the presence of the eternal. Wow. (laughs) See what we have here? And and not just here, but a number of places throughout the Old Testament where we read about the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord, usually whenever you read that in the Old Testament, it's not just another angel. The angel, this one, receives worship. The angel speaks as if he is God. The angel of the Lord is a manifestation of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. There's there's one person in the Trinity whose role it is to come and, and relate to us to be a mediator between us and, and, and God. You see that? He's the Lord, and yet he's also the way to the Lord. We have a being here who's from God, yet is God since he's being worshipped. That's Jesus, okay? Now, here's where I wanted to go with this. Uh, rather than show you a passage, like we've done every, every week uh, in this study, rather than show you a passage where we see Christ being pointed to in the Old Testament, I wanted to show you Christ himself. It was Christ himself who appeared to Joshua and and said, uh, I I will fight for you. I will fight for you, okay? Uh, Before I continue here, I think I have one more comment here. Anyone else? Uh, I note the same type of encounter Moses had with the Lord in the burning bush. Moses was asked to remove your sandals. Exactly right. Exactly right. Remove your sandals uh, and for your standing on holy ground, furthermore, implying the presence of the Lord. Exactly right, Christy. That's exactly it. And isn't it, isn't it interesting that we know, we, we, don't, we don't argue that when we see the, the the manifestation of Moses there before the burning bush, that that's God. He's talking to God, a manifestation of God. And he says, take your, your shoes off. You're on holy ground. Same thing that this angel, Jesus, asks of Joshua. Take your sandals off. You're on holy ground. You know why? because you're in the presence of the eternal, okay? So this is not just another angel. This is Christ himself, okay? And as I said, here's here's where I wanted to go with this. Uh, Great observation, uh, Christy. Now, here's where I want to go with this. Rather than show you a passage, I want to show you uh, not just pointing to the old, pointing to Jesus in the, uh, not just showing you a passage where we see pointers to the New Testament. I wanted to show you Jesus himself in the Old Testament, okay? Because here's the reality. Here's the reality. The 10 spies that stood outside this place and said, no way we can't do it. We'll get, we'll get squashed. Okay. They're absolutely right. They were right. They were absolutely right. If they assessed that they were, that they, that these were just just released slaves with no education or training, no, uh, no, no equipment for battle, they were right. And if they addressed, uh, or excuse me, if they assessed that they had no military might or ability, they were right. If they assessed that their adversary was bigger than they were, they were right. And and I believe the Lord wanted them to know and understand those things. I believe the Lord wanted them to realize their weakness. And if that's the case, then what was the problem? Their problem was they didn't understand this. This is from 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, which says this. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. It's what Saul and all of his kingdom didn't realize when they faced the mighty Goliath. When we are weak, we have no one to rely upon but God our Savior. When the Israelites were, were boxed in between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army, they didn't realize when we are weak, we have no one to rely upon but God our Savior. When the 10 spies looked upon the land that the Lord promised them, yes, they were outnumbered. Yes, they were outsized. Yes, they were at a tremendous disadvantage. Yes, they were weaker than their adversary. But do you know what? When we are weak, we have no one to rely upon, but God, our savior. What, uh, what kind of person are you when it comes to reading instructions? If you buy something that requires assembly, are you the type of person to just start putting stuff together? Or do you open up the instructions, lay everything out and start on instruction 1A? I think my instinct, my natural instinct is to say, Ah. Uh, I don't, (laughs) I don't need these instructions. I think I get the gist of it. Pretty smart guy. I think I can figure it out. I think that's my natural instinct to be like that. Okay, but I'm no longer that way. You know why? In my youth, in my youth, when I was younger, I was the type of person to just start putting something together thinking I was smarter than I actually was not needing to follow the instructions. But then after a while, after one too many instances where I'd have to, to go back and undo whatever I did to then follow the instructions, I just decided, you know what? I'm going to be the kind of person from now on who follows the instructions, whether I think I need to or not. It's just the way I arrived at this place, not on purpose, but because I was forced into this, this, uh, uh, this mindset. And I think that's how the Lord treats us too. I think He allows us to wallow in ignorance sometimes allow us to to wallow in what we think we know until we reach a point where we say, you know what? I think I need help. You see, for the Christian, weakness isn't a weakness. It's a place our Lord brings us so that we realize we are 100% dependent upon his strength, not our own, okay? So, and here's the other thing that I wanted to grasp about this account, all right? Not just that, uh, uh, in our weakness, we are strong. That's, that's the pattern of Christ. That's the pattern of our whole entire faith, okay? But here's the other thing I want us to grasp about, about this account, something we often fail to recognize, and that is Jesus is holy. Jesus is holy. I have one more comment here. I think uh, uh, Aaron and Rosemary said something. Here. I think it's interesting that the man, Jesus, clothed in the flesh, does not have any other descriptors, is a man that has no special beauty or form that we should desire him. The description in Isaiah. That's right. That's a good observation. Uh, this man that we see that Joshua encountering here. It just says it's a man. It's just a man, armed for battle, sword in the hand. No other, no other major description uh, description of him. Just as as uh, as Aaron and Rosemarie point out here, that it's a man with no special beauty or form that we should desire him. Just exactly as the description in Isaiah. Okay, uh, and with that. With that. So, yes, and in, in this also pointing to weakness and strength. It wasn't that, you know, when, when the Lord came, he didn't come in such a way that, oh my goodness, it's a warrior. Let's all follow him. No, he's the son of a carpenter. Okay. He lived most of his life as a poor person. When he finally came into Jerusalem, he came in on a donkey. Okay. Not with an army of, 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 of chariots and horses and, and armor. He came in in weakness. This is the pattern of our Lord. So, that's the first thing we realize here weakness and strength. Weakness, weakness. Uh, uh, excuse me. Weakness is our our point of strength. Okay. Now, um, this is something that uh, something else that I want us to recognize about this account, and that is that um, in the Old Testament, in particular, okay, we see this consistent pattern, consistent pattern throughout the Old Testament. Jacob had an encounter with God. He uh, Luke taught us about this several weeks back. Okay. Jacob had an encounter with God, and he wrestled with him until. God decided to put his hip out of a joint, okay? Isaiah had an encounter with the Lord, and he shouts out that, that he's undone, he's ruined. Get away, is his exclamation, right? Joshua here meets the Lord, and he meets a man who is armed, ready for battle, drawn sword, and his reaction is he puts his nose to the dirt, okay? Are you, are you seeing a pattern here? Are you seeing a pattern? When these folks have an encounter with God there's nothing really warm and fuzzy about it. And this is the pattern throughout the Old Testament. And here, his proclamation to Joshua is, I'm holy. I am holy. Remove your sandals because you're on holy ground, just like Christy pointed out to us a moment ago. Why is that? What does that mean when we speak of the holiness of Christ? Okay? Now, I don't, I don't want to I don't want to uh, startle you here or make you think that, oh, Jesus is not approachable or Jesus is not the, the kind of Abba Father that we can curl up in his lap and, and, and say, you know, uh, God comfort me, okay? He certainly is that. He, he tore the veil in two and he gave us access to the, to the holiest of, of, of places. But this is what I also want us to understand here. What it says in, in Hebrews 1.3, it says this, okay? Hebrews 1.3, He is the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Okay, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. In other words, there's a lot of wisdoms in, in, in a lot of our wisdom in a lot of our children's songs. He's got the whole world in His hands. Yet, um, how we tend to approach Jesus. We, we tend to go to him with problems. Again, I'm not speaking of, of you, you crying out to him uh, seeking comfort. Um, I'm speaking more of our mindset of how we approach him with our problems and say, hey, God, I need your help with this. I need you to fix this, okay? We, we sometimes have a tendency to approach him with our agenda, and we want to know, hey, God, are you with me, or are you for me, or are you against me? And his answer to us, no look at the universe. I made the universe. Okay. It's the wrong question. We can't come to God with our agenda. We we have to realize he's the one with the agenda. He's the one doing the leading. We can't come to him with conditions. You know, the ones that say, God, I'll follow you if, right? If you come to God with those types of conditions, who's actually calling the shots? Who's actually the one saying, are you with me or are you against me? Okay? Each one of us, each one of us in our walk with the Lord has to come to a spot where we realize that it's not our place to ask Christ, are you with me or are you against me? We have to come to the spot where we answer him when he asks, are you for me? Or are you against me? Okay? No conditions, no holdbacks. Regardless of the circumstances in which you find yourself, we have to remember that he is holy. He's got the whole universe in his hands, okay? And me? Me? Maybe, maybe I should just put my nose in the dirt, knees to the ground, and worship him for who he is and have my will conform to his, not try and have his will conform to mine. And I know that's what our natural tendency to do is, especially when we're we're, we're faced with hardship, especially when we're faced with difficulty or stress. We have a, a, an impression in our minds of how things should go. And God, I know how things should go, so can you get on board? We have to re-gear our mindset to say, God, what are you doing? And make my will conform to yours, okay? Uh, let's see if there are any thoughts or final questions before we dismiss. We're, we're short on time here. Got a little time before it's time for you to jump over. Uh, Uh, Let's see. Also from Christy, um, it's more. Help us to want to follow your plan, Lord, and surrender, because ultimately in his plan and his will for our lives, that is where we want to be. It's exactly it. It's exactly what I was uh, uh, just wrapping up here with, saying that again, uh, not my will, but yours be done. Christ himself prayed that in the garden. Not my will, but yours. Not my will. Allow my will my will to be conformed to yours, not the other way around, which is sometimes if you catch yourself, I do this all the time. I catch myself praying in such a way that I'm asking God to conform his will to mine because I think I know what's up. I think I know what the best is. I think I know what's wise or what's prudent, and what's best. But at the end, I, I want to pray so that my will aligns with his and everything that I pray so that my will aligns with his. Okay. Any other thoughts or final comments or questions here? Uh, I have a question about the Jordan. This is from uh, Aaron and Rosemary was that on purpose to have a second baptism as the prior generation baptized through the Red Sea had passed. I don't think it was, I don't think it was meant to be about, that's a great question. I'll have to maybe do some further reading on that, but I don't think it was meant to be a second baptism, but rather hearken back uh, to to what happened already before. It wasn't, well, let me put it to you this way, that this is also, I guess maybe we could look at it as 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 a baptism, but not a second baptism, but one that points forward to our, true baptism. Let me put it that way, okay? The the Red Sea crossing wasn't the baptism. It only pointed forward to the real baptism of the Holy Spirit. In the same way, the Red Sea, or the, the Jordan River now, is not necessarily hearkening back to the first baptism and saying a second one, but it also hearkens forward to the ultimate baptism of the Holy Spirit. Everything in the Old Testament pointing forward what would eventually happen in in the new testament so that's how i would answer that question great question though you stumped me for a moment Uh, any other any other thoughts or comments uh, before we we sign off if not once again i uh i certainly appreciate you all uh joining me and again once again i would encourage you uh after you sign off here sign on live uh, for the worship service uh at at 10 a.m and and again engage it in such a way that uh, would set your mind in such a way that says I'm here I'm at worship I'm I'm at worship with with the body of Christ alongside me even though we're not technically beside one another but uh, but also uh, worship in such a way that uh, puts our minds attention and our hearts affection on Christ himself not not done on what we're doing in this moment not in what our will is in this moment but What is he doing in this moment? What is his will for our lives? Where is he taking us? Where is he leading us? Frame your hearts and minds on that thought. Um, And again, uh, one more comment here from Luke as we dismiss that goes so well with your Hebrews reference in these last days, he has shown us, He has shown everything in Christ in fullness. End of the story, it's Christ. The whole Bible from beginning to end, it's Christ. Christ, okay? Uh, Let me close this in prayer and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you do, in fact, hold the universe in your hands. And so, therefore, Father, knowing that, realizing that, understanding that, conform our will to yours and everything that we're, we're doing, everything that we're going through right now, whatever the case may be, Father, conform our will to yours and let us be at peace with that. For you're the sovereign of the universe. Allow us to bow our knee to put our nose in the dirt and worship you, God alone, thanking you for who you are and that you have brought us in to the holiest of places. We thank you. We love you. Go with us now into worship. We pray this in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen. Again, thanks for joining me and hope to to see you somewhat in uh, worship in just a moment. Uh, Take care. Have a great week.